Dear Holy Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the cleansing rain. Lord, we thank you for every blessing that you give to us, both great and small. I ask that you be with everyone in this room, Lord. Guide them as you will for this camp meeting experience. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to come to this camp meeting and touch those individuals that need your influence. Lord, we thank you for this day, and I ask that those concepts and words that I say today be to honor you and they be your words. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the who, what, when, where of estate planning. We are actually in day four. So we're getting towards the end. So where have we been? We started out talking about estate planning made simple. We talked about the terms. And we talked about the general concepts of estate planning. Day two, we talked about who will have the power. We were talking about powers of attorney. In day three, we talked about who do you trust, talking about trusts. Today, what is your will? So we're going to be talking about wills. But before we start talking about wills, we ran out of time yesterday. And I apologize for going a few minutes late. There's one concept that we didn't talk about in trust. And I just want to bring everything together. And we'll talk about trust just a little bit more today. But I talked about my wife has a trust and I have a trust. And I talked about them being mirror images. That's not the only type of trust that you can have. You can actually have joint trusts. Okay, a joint trust would be, again, an agreement with my wife and I, in which we put everything into one trust. That is a really good mechanism to use. When you use a joint trust, you put everything in one trust, it's so much easier to manage assets. Somebody asked an excellent question after the uh, after the discussion yesterday, and that is, if you have two trusts, how do you put the property in it? So my wife and I only own one house. If we wanted to, and usually with two separate trusts, you usually try to keep them equal to some extent, how would you keep that equal? Well, what you do is you give a half undivided interest of the house to one trust, a half undivided interest to the other trust. And you do see that. We don't like doing that because it makes it a little confusing, but you can split the property. But traditionally in a trust where you have two of them, we would have a cottage up north and the cottage would go in her trust and our main house would go in mine or vice versa. And we'd even out the money or the rest of the assets by putting maybe money in the trust that's lower. So on those types of trusts where you have two trusts, a husband and wife, a mirror image trust, you kind of split out the assets and you put the assets in what I refer to as the person that has less liability. Uh, when I was practicing law every single day in a firm, um, we were putting the house into her trust because she had least liability. In a joint trust, you don't have that protection because it's all in one trust. So just a little bit of a nuance and what you're going to find is you're going to find most people, it's about 50-50. Uh, you talk to some couples and they have a joint trust. You talk to other couples and they have a two mirror image trust. So That's why I wanted to follow up with that we didn't have a chance to finish yesterday. So what is your will? That's for anything. That's whether you have a will. That's whether you have no estate planning. Anything. I, I never like owning a vehicle in two different names. Even your children, I would recommend that you have their children own their own vehicle. If they're over 18, put that vehicle in their name. It might cost you a little bit more in insurance, but trust me, if something catastrophic happened, you don't want your name on their vehicle. But good question. Okay, what is your will? This is again one of my favorite uh, Bible quotes. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And again, we give thanks in all circumstances, even though it is raining today. This is the biggest question that every estate planner gets. It's the biggest statement that every estate planner gets. Somebody comes in and says, 
I want a simple will. I want a simple will. And then after you talk to him for an hour and a half to two hours, you have three pages of notes. <laughs> there is no such thing as a simple will. Let me tell you this. A will is a simple document, okay? We don't need that many factors in Michigan. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But for a will, it's got to be dated, signed, and there has to be some words in it. My favorite will of all times, and I always forget the president that did it, but the will provided this. Provided two sentences. And what he did is he acknowledged his children, he gave everything to his wife, and he left his wife as the executor. Not being unmindful for my children, I give everything to my wife. My wife shall be my executor. Covered everything. Indicated where his assets were to go. And it named his fiduciary. That's it. That is the only simple will I've ever heard of. The reason that wills aren't simple on their face isn't because of the words. It's because, number one, the emotion. This is the first document that we've talked about that deals with death. Trusts don't deal with death. Powers of attorney don't deal with death. This is the one that deals with death. This is why people don't go in and do their estate planning. Right? It's just sad to think about. I mean, let's, let's face it, we start with the words last. <laughs> it just, it, 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 in, it basically says this is it, you know. It's kind of a final. Now, I got to tell you, just like your trust, statistically, people will amend their will two more times. So you will amend your will. So when we're looking at wills, let's look at the type of wills and we'll discuss each one of them. Statutory wills. In Michigan, we have a statutory will. What that means is, if you go into Michigan Compiled Laws, there's actually a page that you can photocopy if you have the right printing and fill in the blanks. It has all of your requirements. So what are the requirements? It's got to be dated. It's got to identify you by your name. It has to have two witnesses. Michigan requires two in most circumstances. And it has to have the provisions that you want. So it has to provide who your fiduciaries are. And it has to provide where your stuff goes. So when somebody comes in to prepare a will, they ask, what do I need? Where's your stuff going to go? Who's going to be in charge? Where's your stuff going to go and who's going to be in charge? So when you think that you're going to want to go in and talk to your estate planning professional, let's say Pastor Hall comes to your house, that's what he needs to know. Where's your stuff going to go? Who's in charge? But what sometimes makes it difficult is you have to make other decisions to make this a long-standing document. Who's the backups? So if I say everything goes to my wife, that's fine. But what happens if something happens? We have an issue, my wife and I pass away about the same time. What's the backup? Now, I talked about this yesterday for the trust. A lot of times you see mirror images for your wills also. But you need to have those backups. Not only a backup on who is going to receive your assets or what, because you can name entities, but who's going to be in charge? Statutory will will give that information. Next type of will is a holographic will. Holographic is handwritten. Michigan still re recognizes a handwritten will. And we're getting fairly technical where we're starting to look at digital wills. We just spent a lot of time discussing that the uh, last two months uh, as an estate planning bar in Michigan. So holographic wills, the requirement, it has to be in your own hand. It has to be handwritten. The reason that we do this is, it, is it's self-authenticating. Uh, if you ask Samantha as a witness, is this your dad's handwriting? She could probably say, yeah, she's seen it enough. So what's nice about the holographic will is it's simple. You see a lot of people do this just before they go on vacation. 
they'll write something out. And I've actually given that advice to somebody. You know, I like it to have them date it, but date it, write it out, and sign it. No, filed? not witness, not filed. And that's another good question. You can file your wills for safekeeping. You don't need to. Back in the old days, the courthouse was kind of the hub of your county. We used to call them county seats. So what the courthouse did is it did a bunch of stuff. Number one, they had a vault there. Um, go back many hundred years, that would probably be the only place that has a vault. Right? So you'd take it to the courthouse, you'd give them a small fee, and they would hold it for you. They'll still do the same things. But the problem ends up being is we have access to safety deposit boxes now. We have access to home safes. You really don't need that. And I'm willing to guess that most people keep their, uh, their important documents somewhere in a file cabinet crammed in with other documents. But... The other thing that the courthouse was is it was a place to go and meet with your relatives and your friends. And then if you really needed entertainment, you went to the courthouse and you would watch trials or motions. So it was the hub of uh, where to be in the county. It's not like that anymore, but you can file them. Custom wills, that's what we really talk about. You go to your attorney or you go to your estate planning professional and you say, this is what I want. And they will ask you questions and they'll get a better idea of what you're looking for. The document is only as good as how it's written, okay? So what I mean by that is when you get a custom will, they'll actually go through and you'll have more complex items in there than you would in a statutory will. Or, my favorite are the wills from Staples or any of these other places that you can get. I was once asked, what do you think about these will forms or these deed forms? I said, I love them. They are wonderful. Because most of the time you get it from a different state or it doesn't have the requirements in Michigan, and so we end up fixing them. It's always more expensive to fix something than it is to do it right the first time. So they're wonderful. <laughs> Samantha thanks you. That's what got her to Southern because of all the stuff I had to fix legally for people. Um, but when a custom will, what you're going to really be doing is you're going to be finding out what your goals are. So you're going to go in, the professional's going to say, what's your goals, right? What do you want? And then they're going to go through a series of questions. I used to have a big form that I'd ask people, you know, we'd fill in the form. I found out it was just much easier to have the conversation. And we would send it to the form to them ahead of time, and most of the time they would never get filled out. And so what you can do with a will is somewhat only limited to your imagination as long as you keep it legal. One of my favorite things is when they redid the estate planning um, code, we call it EPIC, um, they allowed you to have an incorporation into your will. So what I can do is I can leave a handwritten list and it's incorporated into my will. So we do the same thing with trust if we put the language in there. It's actually a wonderful thing because you can change that. It doesn't need to be notarized, doesn't need to be witnessed. It makes the document more of a living uh, document. You hear these living wills, those are usually referred to as powers of attorney for healthcare. But with this attachment to your will or this other document, you can really change things. I guarantee you one thing, your assets are going to be different next year than they are this year. Only thing I can't guarantee is they're not be better, right? You may have more assets, you may have less assets, but they will be different. So there may be something that's really important to you today that you want to put in your will that may not be so important later. So sometimes with personal property, I tell people, use the handwritten or typed list that attaches it. Reason I say typed list is the statute actually says a handwritten list. What they try to do is kind of tie into the holographic because they want it to be self-authenticating. When I draft my wills, I'll say I may leave a handwritten or typed list. Now, another year or so, I may say I may leave a handwritten, typed, or digital list, depending where the law goes. 
actually in mine, since I want to be a little bit more cutting edge, I may redo mine in the near future and put digital. Just because. Now the problem with the digital is we're still trying to figure out how do you authenticate that. Now with my phone that's passworded and it's in there in the notes, that gets pretty close, right? There's probably not going to be a lot of people that do that. Or if I email it to somebody, you know, we can tie into my email address. So there is some ways of self-authenticating it, but that's part of what makes your will custom. And it makes it more of a living document. You don't always have to come in. So give you a couple examples of what not to do. Um, my law partner represented this wonderful old lady. She was an old school teacher, never got married. So she had all these antiques that she acquired from her mother. So she would come in and say, and my partner's name was Jack. Jack, I want you to put in my will that the bed uh, set goes to this person and the piano goes to this person and the you know, kitchen table goes to this person. And she would come in and change her documents. Now I love Jack because he basically grew up in an area and she was his school teacher, so he never charged her for this. He was very kind about this. But they were on about the sixth or seventh codicil to her will. And he said, stop. What we're gonna do is I'm gonna draft a new will for you. And what we're gonna say is everything that's in this room goes to this relative. Everything in the kitchen goes to this person. Jack thought he was a genius. Because what he did is he compartmentalized her assets. Jack said he went to the house after she passed away. He was horrified. <laughs> because in one room she had so much stuff crammed in it because it was to go to this child. In her kitchen she didn't have other things. In her dining room she didn't have the table because it was in one of the bedrooms because it was to go to another child. So imagine this poor little lady moving furniture, large furniture around, and her life wasn't functional because she has a table in her bedroom because that's to go to one of her nephews, per se. That's a bad example, okay? That's a bad example. The other thing is I would run into this, too, before we really did the handwritten list or the typed list. Um, for some reason, grandfather clocks were important to people. Now it seems to be pianos. There seems to be trends of family heirlooms that are popular. But back um, when I first was doing this, it was grandfather clocks. And somebody would come in and say, my grandfather clock goes to my son, let's call him Jimmy. Well, Jimmy didn't come for Thanksgiving or he didn't send a card. So Jimmy's out, Jimmy does not get the grandfather clock. So came in and did a codicil, now it goes to Sally. Sally gets the grandfather clock. Well, Sally did something to put her in disfavor, so all of a sudden Sally's out. So you end up having this will that has all these amendments or codicils. That's why I think one of your greatest tools is when you do these, that listing is just wonderful because things are going to change in your life. It makes your document much more flexible. Matt, will you tell us, uh, sorry if I'm getting ahead again, but will you tell us some, some things that cannot from a legal standpoint, be in that handwritten list. Yes, great example. That list is supposed to be for personal property. What is personal property? Personal property is stuff that you can touch. This case is personal property. This computer is personal property. What is not personal property? Money. Money is actually a legal concept. It, hey, I actually have a dollar today. <laughs> um, money is... Um, Money is really a concept. It's not personal property. It's what we use to, to gauge wealth and pay debts. So I can't put in my handwritten list, I give $20,000 to this person, I give $10,000 to that person. It's, that's not what it's intended to be. We're more thinking of household items. And I see a lot of trust that says, um, I may make a list of household items, jewelry, sporting equipment, uh, things like that. That's really what we're looking for. The other thing that you don't want to put in there is you really don't want to put in their bank accounts because that's just an extension of money. You cannot put in retirement accounts. They will not think that as a change of beneficiary form. You can't put life insurance references. 
and you cannot put vehicles. Like, Why can't you put vehicles? Because if you have got the uh, you know. What if you do put it in there? Uh, not knowing what you shouldn't, but will it be overlooked? Where would you put it? I mean, isn't that an asset? Well, I'll answer that question. I'll answer that question. So the practical one is if you put it in there and somebody can test it, the judge will say it's not valid. Then it falls into what I would refer to as your rest residue and remainder clause. So let's say I put in my handwritten list. Now I have a dollar. I'm pretty excited. I give my dollar to Pastor Hall and when they're probating my will, somebody comes in and they say, well, he should know that you can't leave cash. He doesn't get the $1. And then what happens is it goes and it gets distributed to my trust because I have a pour over will. Uh, just a second, I'm gonna get back to you. So where does it go? What clause? Rest, residue and remainder. Residue and remainder. Yep. Um, so did I answer your question? Where does it go? No, where, I mean, okay. it's part of your estate. Yes, it's part of your estate. So what happens in your will is you basically have tiers of where your assets go. I have never figured out how to die and not pay your bills. One of these days if I figure it out and you find me, there's a bunch of people lined out where I'm at, I figured it out. Jump in line. <laughs> okay. But the general idea of probate is they want to make sure that your debts get paid, right? You can't just die and not pay your debts. So most people's wills, what they will say is, um, after I die, you have to pay my debts. Now, if you don't have enough money, you can put a hierarchy in your will, but the law provides for a hierarchy. Guess who gets paid first? No. He said the government. The attorneys get paid first. <laughs> Don't we live in a wonderful country? <laughs> no, it's the cost of administration. So the personal representative gets paid first, the attorneys get paid first because they have to work to get this done. Then your funeral gets paid, then your doctor gets paid. Guess who has the better lobbyist out of those three? <laughs> so the attorney, the funeral home, and the doctors. Then we start looking at the taxes, then we start looking at um, what I'm gonna refer to as secured assets. So if you have a mortgage, you have a security on your property, those debts get paid. Then you look at unsecured, this is the credit cards. Then you jump down a level. And then that's where I put the listing of, okay, I may leave a handwritten or typed list, so that's where, um, like my watch goes to one of my friends, my golf clubs go to another one of my friends, my uh, guns selectively go to another friend and family member. And quite frankly, my wife doesn't want this stuff. She calls this the clean out the garage clause. <laughs> um, and I change it about every couple of years just as things change. Just a second. All these payments they made first, do they sell the individual stuff? Yep. Yep, you got to pay your bills first. So good question. Do you hear what he said? What happens to that stuff? You usually have a sale or you liquidate it and then um, those bills get paid and then what happens to those bills are some people just don't get paid or we do it proration. That happens quite a bit. I do want to warn you about something while we're on this. Um, I like percentages. Um, we're all used to 10%, right? We understand 10% of my estate. But I've done a number of wills when somebody's fairly wealthy and I've had to probate it where let's say their church gets $100,000 and then another charity gets $50,000 and then another charity gets $250,000. The library gets $10,000 and you add it up and you have a million dollars and the person died broke. Two things happen with that. Number one is I set up sad thoughts because I've got to send that will and that notice to all those charities and imagine 
I can just think this always comes around budgetary times, right? We're making the budget for the next year. I open this envelope from the law office and it says, you have been named as a beneficiary to Mr. Smith's will. And Mr. Smith has left you 250,000. And you're like, prayers are answered. And then about 90 days after, because you gotta file your inventory within 91 days, you get the inventory and it says, the estate of Mr. Smith has $10,000 in it. And they do their math very quickly and they go, huh, this isn't gonna work. So what happens is that $10,000, let's say that under this hypothetical, all the bills have been paid, that's what's left. That $10,000 then proportionally gets distributed to those beneficiaries. What's a better way of putting this? Percentage. So that charity, instead of $250,000, gets 25% of my estate. They're not quite as depressed. You know, so then they're looking at $2,500, not $250,000. It, it's just a drafting thing to think about. Uh, now, that's not to say that if you've got some wealth that you wouldn't want to give specific dollar amounts to individuals. That's different. In that, we do quite a bit. Um, you know, I've got a great niece I want to give $5,000 to. You know, that's a little bit different. So, first thing that happens is your bills get paid. Second thing... Uh, distribution of handwritten items. Next thing is specific amounts or specific gifts. This is where you usually see my great niece or nephew gets $5,000. I give the cottage to someone else. Um, let's say my, uh, my nephew Kyle. I give to the church 15%. You know, you, you start going through things. I'm more of a lineal thinker, um, although some people don't agree with that. <laughs> um, I like to think of actual specific assets, percentages, next. Then I like to do what's left. So once we have all the specific lists done, then what I go to is what's called the rest, residue and remainder clause. Do you know attorneys used to get paid by the word? Yeah. So think about this. I'm having a bad financial week. Somebody comes in and says, I would like you to draft my will. Huh. <laughs> so I imagine somebody sitting there going, okay, he said he wants the rest of his stuff to go to his wife. Well, rest of stuff. Well, rest is kind of vague, maybe. What about the rest and residue? Well, that sounds good. I've, I've added two words to my will. How about rest, residue, and remainder? Oh, yeah, rest, residue, and remainder. That's 25 cents a word. You know, we're, we're starting to rack it up. <laughs> so what had happened is before word processors, when we were still handwriting things out, they would pay their scrivener to draft the document. So they were charged by the word, so they charged their client by the word. So we get these long flowing terms that really don't mean much today, but unfortunately, the word rest, resident, remainder all have legal significance now. So we still use them, even though the reason that we do it is kind of greedy <laughs> and archaic. Now, you'll talk to a uh, a legal historian for documents and they will say that's incorrect that is cynical thought these individuals thought at a much higher level than you did they were trying to get rid of ambiguous terms they're trying to be more defined I like my theory better <laughs> I think mine is more pragmatic yes can you clarify something yes uh, for me at least um, in the payment of bills personal property, especially something on a handwritten list, might those things be lost because the bills have to be paid? In other words, so so the handwritten list does not trump the need to pay the bills. Article 1 will always say your bills get paid, okay. period. Article 2 will be the handwritten list. Article 3, 
uh, will be the specific devices or uh, other items. Article four will be the rest residue and remainder clause. And sometimes we don't have the article three is the rest residue and remainder clause. But that's an excellent question. You know, there just may not be enough assets left to even get beyond the personal property. And that happens. It does happen. Um, I'm going to give you some practical advice. And this also comes from a discussion yesterday. I've got a couple pet peeves in my life. Um, and it's just from dealing with this long enough. I don't want to say I'm yet jaded. Give me another 10 years. That might be changing. But what I don't like is this term of my parents are spending my inheritance. Think about that for a moment. Who do you owe in this room? Now, if you're married, you and your wife have, um, have assets together. We talked that estate planning is really about stewardship. So we want to take care of our, I'm going to say obligations because I've never thought as charitable giving as an obligation. It's something that you want to do because you feel it's right. If you give with a pure and open heart, it's much different than just giving. But why do our children feel that they're owed something? So I'm going to tell you something. This is the advice I can give you. After providing for your debts, after providing for some of your charitable needs, die broke. Mm -hmm. Right? It's so much easier to probate. <laughs> you know what the inventory fee of nothing is? <laughs> um, but it's just, it's a practical thing because we've set up expectations. And where this conversation went that we had after this class yesterday was you see a lot more changes in giving in individuals. The old idea of my kids get it is going away. Now, this is a little bit different in a farm family because in that we're stewards for the land we try to pass on generations you try to grow the farm not let it shrink but that's more of a business concept just with a regular concept we're seeing a lot more people give to charities to give to the church and really saying what's ever left goes to my children and it's just a different mindset and I think the reason why as a couple I think that we've had leaders in our society. Uh, the Gates Foundation is a great example. You know, we had at one point the wealthiest people in the world not giving to their children significantly. That's got an impact. These are intelligent people and they've thought it through. Go ahead. Uh, if there's not enough money to uh, pay all the bills, and you have accounts set up that have beneficiaries on them. How does that Excellent question. Excellent so question. Wondering. Okay, I, well, where does your, your IRA already have the beneficiary, so it doesn't yep. go in the will? I was going to get to that in a few minutes, but let's do that right now. Think of your assets in really two boxes. Um, so we're going to say assets that belong to me, right? And for those people listening, I just made a T chart, a line on top, and then a line going down to make a T. On the far left is me on the top. And then I'm going to write beneficiaries or Ben on the right. So when somebody comes in to try to figure out the inventory in a state, what I do is I tell them to set up this type of chart and we also will put joint next to beneficiaries so we list out everything so let's let's pick on me for example well what do i have i have personal property so personal property is that the watch i'm wearing right now um, i've got a bunch of books stuff like that boring stuff right um, i have Some vehicles, they're titled in my name only. Why? Because I don't want to share liability with somebody. 
and then I have one bank account that's in my name. It's actually in my business name. That's all I own, personally. Now, we're not gonna say I have a trust because that makes it too difficult. I have a 401k that has a beneficiary. I have an IRA that has a beneficiary. I have another bank account that's held jointly with somebody. I have a house that's held jointly with somebody. What do I really own? Seriously, what do I really own? So, you know, we can probate my personal property. Now, I've got to tell you, you've got, you're supposed to probate that. But I'm also going to tell you, I've already assigned that to my trust. So that's out. But let's, let's stay with my hypothetical. Let's say I have about three, dollars $4,000 in personal property. And the reason I come up with that is this desk may have been worth a lot of money when the school paid for it, right? Especially if it's a steel case, right? They paid, let's say, $1,000 for it. If we put this out on the road right now with a for sale sign on it, how much do you think we'd get for it? 10 bucks and we'd have to deliver it. <laughs> And we'd even put $10 on here and somebody would say, I'll give you five for it, right? So what is your personal property really worth? It's not worth that much. And I've really had these discussions with the probate judges. My favorite probate judge says, inventory at all, give me yard sale value. Yeah, really. You know, in this room, if we were, to, even all the desks, you know, all the books and everything, what would we give? 110 bucks, and we're still gonna have to deliver it. And they're gonna want us to deliver it to Barian. <laughs> yeah, Dave's like sold. <laughs> so when we talk about somebody's estate for probate purposes, this is why we have assignments. This is why we have the small estates, which creeps up in value, but we basically fill a document, we say personal property, and we transfer it over. I have to say, I'm gonna shoot high on this, 90% of estate planning attorneys will not probate personal property. They just won't. Now we'll tell the client that they're supposed to, but the client usually leaves and never comes back. Household goods? Well, that's personal property, that's household goods. Like chair, oh, absolutely, dishes. yep. So my cars, we've already transferred that in a TR-29 form, but we should inventory these for the probate court, right? And then my bank account, that's easy. We print out the statement and we say how much it's got. But for the most part, there's not usually a lot of assets to be probated because my 401k has a beneficiary, my IRA has a beneficiary, my life insurance has a beneficiary, my bank account is held jointly, and my house is held jointly. This comes into an important question. Why do I need a will? Why do you need a will? And I'll tell you, I met with somebody last week and I actually talked her out of a will. She had one daughter. All the bank accounts were in the daughter's name. They had no other family members. There was a boyfriend. There's also a boyfriend. <laughs> the boyfriends always come to the meetings. They get to sit out in the lobby. They just are unhappy. But she said, all I have is my house. The bank account's in my daughter's name. We share everything. I don't really have much in personal property. My daughter's bought it all. She goes, I want to do a will. I was told in a seminar, I have to have a will. And I said, you know, in your circumstances, you're going to take a business risk. Because where do you want to go in case you die? Do you want to go to a boyfriend? What's the answer? No, of course not. <laughs> um, so what we did is we did a ladybird deed for her house. She can retained control of her house. It passed by operational law. And I said, if something happens to your daughter, come to me immediately. We'll make a contingency. And a husband and wife, do you need a will? Probably. And this is why I'm saying it. And actually, I'm not going to even say probably. I'm going to say yes. Under Michigan law, 
if you are married and you have children, your children actually can get a percentage of your estate. Now again, this is only stuff that's held in my name jointly, but that's gonna happen. And the problem ends up being is, depending on how your relationship's set up and how your assets are set up, you just wanna get rid of that issue. And I've gotta say, I've had a couple times in my lifetime where there's lots of business assets, they're in the husband's name, husband dies, wife comes in without a will, and she said, under intestate, I get everything, right? I say, no, we open up the book, we look at the percentages. Next meeting is with the kids. Because the kids have a couple of choices. They can disclaim what they would receive, and then hopefully mom gets it, or dad, whoever passed away first. Or it's a really uncomfortable conversation. So always have a will. The other nice thing about a will is I still think the handwritten or a typed list is wonderful. It, it's one of my favorite parts of the law because it gives you so much flexibility. There are certain things that are what I'm going to refer to as family heirlooms. You just want somebody to receive. If you don't have them now, you will have them. You get more sentimental as you get older. Um, but generally, the other thing that gives you in your will is you can designate who's in charge, and that's really a big issue. Testamentary trust, I want to spend some time. Oh, yes. No, they do not. I'm sorry. Or a joint account. This is a wall. The reason I put this T is anything on the right side, you can't get to. It's not part of your estate. So you're right. I went to a long, long way of saying no. <laughs> Yes. Okay. You have a handwritten will. Yes. Okay. You had just stated you don't put your accounts in that type, but if that's the only will you have, you need to list all of those assets. No, you don't list them. Never list your assets in your will, for the most part. She, she might be connecting the handwritten list with yes. handwritten will. No, but I'm just different. saying, is there a difference between what you put in a handwritten will versus the handwritten list? Absolutely. The handwritten will is just going to say, when I die, it goes to this person, this person's in charge. The handwritten list is completely and utterly different. It's kind of an addition to your typed will. Um, and again, this is a nuance, so that's a really good question, because you don't see many holographic wills. We just don't see a lot of them. This is the, I'm at the airport, I draft it, I mail it to myself or I mail it to who is ever in charge. You know, these you really only see in emergencies. The other time that you see this in our, our lady that was working hospice isn't in here right now, but you see a lot of these deathbed wills. You wanna spend lots of time in court, do one of those. Because there's whole competency issues, what kind of medications were they taking, when were they taking them. Testamentary trusts are a wonderful, wonderful tool. What a testamentary trust is, it was, we touched on this a little bit yesterday, but this segues into something else. Let's change the facts of my life a little bit. Let's say Samantha's not 20 years old today, but she turned 13, so she's a minor. If she's 13, that means my daughter Shelby is, depending what month it is, probably, um, probably 10, okay? Should, let's change all of these assets. And let's say we have a house that's in my name. Let's say we have some more bank accounts. We have some insurance money that goes into my estate. Do I want my two minor children to get all that stuff? No. In Michigan, we have what's called the Uniform Transfers to Minors Act. What that is, is the Uniform Transfers to Minor Act says a child cannot get any assets. Children under the age of 18 cannot hold assets, and they cannot make contracts. Now, they actually can make contracts, it's just they're voidable, but who gets to void it? The kid. Um, I actually ran into this not too long ago. My daughter bought a dirt bike. She didn't have quite enough money. So her first attempt was go to the bank of dad. <laughs> 
If you're a parent, you understand the pink of dad and mom. <laughs> so she went to the bank of dad. Bank of dad was closed that day. <laughs> it was not during banker's hours. <laughs> so the bank of dad gave a, a conditional acceptance in writing. And it said, go to the real bank first. Because when I was a kid, how you built credit is you went to the regular bank, you had your parents co-sign, use your social security number. Shelby's got a job. Actually, she's got two jobs. She can pay this. So I called my bank. Actually, I called a credit union because they're sometimes a little bit more liberal on certain things. Call up credit union and said, I got a 16-year-old daughter. She's incredibly responsible. She's been working for three years. She has a lot of money in the bank uh, under a junior savings account. And she would like a loan and I will co-sign for it, and you know who I am, and I want to do this to build credit. And I got a new clerk, and he goes, uh, I don't think we do that anymore. He goes, let me talk to my boss. I'm like, yeah, this is a no. He came back about five minutes later, and he thanked me for being a good customer in hopes that I will continue to be a good customer. Now I know the no is coming, right? I'm being buttered up for it. He goes, you know, we really don't do that because, as you should know, Matt, your daughter can default. I said, yeah, but I'm collectible. He said, no, we're just not doing anymore. So they're doing the right things, right? Because without me, Shelby could have made one payment and said, I'm not going to pay you again. I'm going to avoid the contract. You should have known better because I am a minor. Now, the law says that any time that you give um, assets to a minor, you're supposed to fill out a form. It's actually in the, there's a standard form in the statute in the Michigan Transfers to Minors Act. I gotta say, I've only seen like one or two ever done. Um, what usually happens is it gets slid over. And if you remember the first day I said, ah, you can give up to about $5,000 to a minor. The reason I said that is most of the judges that I've worked with and the judges that Christie's worked with says, there's a minimal amount that you can do, and the threshold is usually four or $5,000. And so they'll kind of let that float underneath the radar. And think about this, it really doesn't make sense. The Uniform Transfers to Minor Act doesn't make sense because any bank account these days, they have a junior saving account, so the kids can put in their birthday money or you know, if they have a lemonade stand, which doesn't happen anymore, but realistically, if they start selling stuff on eBay, <laughs> Um, you know, they can acquire some wealth. And by the time they're 18, 19, they can have a decent amount of wealth acquired into this little junior savings account. So why couldn't I give a little bit of money to my niece or nephew, right? And then usually if they're 16, this turns into magically a car, the parents allow it. So, but let's go on the black letter of the law. If I can't give any assets to, let's pick on Mitchell, Dave's grandchild, if I can't give Mitchell any money because he's under the age of 18, how do I do it? Easy, I put in trust. Well, Mitchell may be 18 by the time he receives the $5,000 that I want to give him, or let's say 6,000. So what I do is I set up a trust language or trust designation in my will. They're called testamentary trusts. And what it will say is, I would like to give $6,000 to Mitchell if he is under the age of, and let's pick on him, let's say 21. If he's under the age of 21, it stays in the trust. If he's over the age of 21, he gets it completely. Now, I plan on living a little bit longer, so Mitchell will probably be over 21 before I pass away. But if he's not, it stays in that trust that's created there. Now, that's not truly the trust it gives language to create a trust on his behalf. And I'll put language in there that um, I want uh, the trustee to have all the powers provided for in the Michigan Trust Act. I'll say in there that I want these assets to be held for him. When he, changed, when he turns the age of 21, he gets it completely. But I'll also put language in there, probably if my trustee determines, and I may even make Dave his trustee, if he determines for his health, education, or welfare, he needs some of the money, you can give it to him. It's pretty simple. They're almost like a springing power of attorney. 
because they spring in the event something happens. In the event Mitchell is under the age of 21, this trust comes into effect, this language. These are excellent tools. Now what would happen if I just put in my will, Mitchell receives $6,000? Then what we'd have to do is we'd have to establish a conservatorship. Remember conservatorships from yesterday? We'd have to establish a conservatorship. The parents would go in and say, we need to set up a conservatorship for Mitchell, he's got $6,000. And then what happens is they put it in a restricted account. They have to give an accounting to the court each year. Um, some courts want you to come in for a hearing every other year. It starts adding up. So what have I really done to Mitchell's parents? For $6,000, I've made their life a little bit harder. So that's why these testamentary trusts are wonderful tools. They're wonderful tools. Um, there's a couple other ways that you can do this and they get a little bit more complicated. You know, you could do a 529 plan, you can do some other plans outside of this for the child. But I want you to think about this when you have minor children. It's really a big deal that you figure out the burden that you're going to put on their parents. Because that's really what it is. You're burdening the parents to have to deal with this money. You're trying to do a good thing in your mind and all of a sudden you kind of cause some hassle. And that's where I really see uh, testamentary trust is one of my favorite tools. When somebody comes in and says, I want a trust, we usually negotiate down to a testamentary trust. Because they don't fit any of the other criteria that we talked about yesterday. But they do have a small gifting that they want to give to some minor children. When you uh, set up a uh, retirement account, there, right? No, the Roth is probably going to be in their name. The Roth would be fine. Roth is fine. I love Roth IRAs. You guys know the difference between a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA? I see some no's, I see some yeses. You're probably the best person to answer this one. Well, yeah, you know, I've heard that from the work that I did with American Securities, but... Yeah, Roth. So what the Roth does is you've already paid the taxes on it, right? So you're not hit initially. Your growth is protected. And um, my first business class, I went to college... Um, at the age of, I, don't, I think I had just turned 17 when I hit college. Um, I went for my junior year here at um, Cedar Lake uh, right to my college years. Um, and I remember my first class, my business teacher came in, and this was an auditorium of about 200 people. He goes, I will make each one of you millionaires. He goes, most likely you're between the ages of 18 and 20. I felt a little bit strange already. <laughs> I didn't even fit in the category because I was too young. He said, if you put about $5,000 away with the rule of seven and with investments, he goes, you will be a multimillionaire. And he started doing the charts backwards. You want just a million? Here's what you invest today. You want $3 million? This is what you invest today. It is amazing what will happen in yet a mere 40 to 50 years of a decent investment for grandchildren or for children. It, it's wonderful. The key, I think, is uh, the instrument. Yep. And that's a really good and conservative. It's not, I wouldn't call it completely conservative, but it's very safe. Yes. Customary trust can be for anyone, not just minors. It can be for anyone. The only thing I would not do a testamentary trust for is I would not do it for special needs. It just doesn't really work. Technically, it could, but it just doesn't work because you already know the special needs are there. It's not going to change, so just do it now. Just do the testamentary trust, do the special needs trust. So, is there such thing as a simple will? Come on, you should know the answer. I know it's rain. No, no. Yes, the only one that is is not being unmindful of my children. I give everything to my wife. My wife is the executor. Now, yes? Very easy. Six months before the marriage, you sat down with your attorneys and you got a really good prenup. Then what you do is you take the language for a prenup, you put it in your estate planning documents, and everybody's happy. How many people do that? Very, very few. <laughs> so what you do is you really have to have separate documents. These aren't going to be mirror images. Most likely what this is going to say is, you know, 
probably the spouse stays in our marital home during their lifetime. Then it goes this way and that goes that way. Second marriages are wonderful, but they have their own estate planning challenges. In a perfect world, everybody does a prenup, and that way it prepares you and it ends up being more business-like. Unfortunately, that's not really romantic. You really want to kill um, a good mood, say, hon, let's go to a date to the attorney's office. <laughs> um, prenups work in Michigan. I love them. I do a lot of them. But it's also, they're very expensive. Um, and it's really looking at preparing and protecting business interests. Because I'm a business attorney also, and it's usually protecting the family business or the farm. Um, more prenups come out of the family farm than anywhere. So what you do is you have your own estate planning documents. You usually also um, provide something for the spouse because you don't want there to be a situation where they run in and say, I want my intestate share. There is some, there is some risk there. But for the most part, um, another thing I do suggest in second marriage is if you think there's going to be some issues, do separate trusts. Because the one bad thing about wills is there, there are only death document, but they're the only document that you're guaranteed to go into court with, almost. And once you open that door, you get the ability to have lots of challenges, right? Trust, the one nice thing about trust is they're never going to hit court unless you really push it. So it's not automatically in court. They're not filed with the court. So, you know, if I'm in a second marriage and I'm really worried about my stepchild and I'm really worried about the influence that my stepchild has on my current spouse, you know, at that point, I may want to think about a fairly simple um, trust, not a joint trust, but both of us having trust and protecting some of my assets. And really, I'm trying to protect my child's assets, right? My biological children. And in that case, at least what they'd have to do is they'd have to jump through a couple more hoops to get us into court. Whereas in the will, the spouse can come right in and they have to make an election in the very beginning of whether they're gonna take pursuant to the will or their intestate share. Yes? Can you talk this briefly about a uh, skip a generation? Yes. Uh, if you don't mind, your class is technically out, it's 10.30, but generation skipping. Um, you're actually taxed for this, so a lot of people are worried about it. So what the idea was is wealthy individuals figured, I'm gonna save money, I'm just gonna give it all to my grandchildren, and then that way I can avoid federal estate tax. And it actually worked for a short period of time. There was a window of time where people were just pumping money to grandchildren. And I'm talking about like the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and people like that. They were pumping a lot of money to their grandchildren. Then somebody in the IRS goes, we're losing money. <laughs> and then they saw the return for the Rockefellers and they're like, we lost a lot of money. <laughs> so what they did is they said, we are going to tax you when you ch skip a generation. So we're going to tax you. And in some situations, it was actually taxed at a higher rate. So that's why people went, ooh. Grandkids get nothing or very little. So the traditional is we usually, as fiduciaries, we take care of our next generation then the generation after that. Yes? Two things. Um, an attorney recently told me that a prenuptial agreement isn't any good in a divorce. That the prenuptial agreement assumes staying married until death. Is, is that correct? So, so if the prenuptial directs things a certain way, but you get a divorce, that's not good, which, which is true. Prenuptial agreements are valid in Michigan. There's a case called Renville versus Renville in 1994 um, that says prenuptials are valid. There's a couple things that we look at prenuptial agreements. They cannot be done in, in anticipation of divorce. They can't be anticipatory. Wow. Um, if you don't think about it, say it fast. Yeah. It's like HIPAA. Um, you can't make it in anticipation of divorce. You have to have some safeguards. I have to uh, disclose my assets to my spouse. She has to disclose to me. We have to have a time period before the marriage 
and I always have attorneys on both sides. Now, there's been a little bit, there was a case that came out a year and a half ago that says, eh, Renville isn't that great, we really wanna cut some of it back. I still believe that they're valid. I do my prenups completely different than most people, and um, what I do is I say, when I die, this is what happens to our estate. Now in Michigan, under EPIC, a spouse can waive their interest in my estate. So what I'll do is I'll put the waiver in there and I'll put the EPIC site and I'll say, oh, by the way, if we get divorced, this is what's gonna happen with our assets. It's a total different tone, right? Because I can say, and it legitimately is an estate planning tool, but it also has a provision if we get in a divorce, uh, had a number of them, never have uh, had them shot down. Put a provision in there. Yep. Well, thank you very much, everyone. I appreciate you being here. Again, I'm sorry we're late, but we kind of, I knew this was going to happen because we rolled over some trust issues. So let's have prayer and we'll talk about where we're at tomorrow. Dear my Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for just all the wonderful questions. Thank you for the opportunity for us to come together and talk about stewardship, for us to just interact with each other in a Christ-like manner. Lord, we just ask that you be with us the rest of the day. Guide our steps as we go through camp meeting. And Lord, give us the opportunity to help others and share your message with others. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.